0: Welcome to another episode of the Good Listening To podcast with me, Chris Grimes, a GLT with me, CG, which is a slippery slope to a GT with me, CG, and we're recording, please. So, good morning, and welcome to another episode of What You Need is a Damn Good Listening To with me, Chris Grimes, and I'm absolutely delighted to be bringing into what's gonna be called The Clearing, more about that in a moment, obs obs obs, the wonderful Mr. Dan Parry, who is indeed, you know, exotic company, because Dan is ex-dangerous films, we'll find what he was doing there. He's also a published author, and I've met him in the last year and a half and become very fond of him, partly because he's taken me to some very nice locations for red wine in London, because he's also a London city guide. We've got lots to talk about, but Dan Parry, Welcome to. Thank you, Chris. Thank, you for, thank you for having me. You're <laughs> welcome. So you're currently Head of Content at Working Voices, that's the capacity in which we met. However what I'm really intrigued by is your journey to now uh, because you've got 24 years of experience as a journalist and a content producer. Uh, you can tell us more about this yourself. I will let you speak in a minute but I know that you've also interviewed in your time some really big hitters, people like George W. Bush um, and people like that. So. Um, how are you doing today?
1: <laughs> Hi Chris, yeah, good, thank you. Very nice to, uh, to join you in your clearing, or our clearing. Um, but yeah, all, all is good and, uh, and excited uh, to be here with you. And it's going
0: to be our Clearing, so I'm going to use some storytelling archetypes as we go through to find out just a bit more about you. Why this idea came about during lockdown was to just amplify the voice and the personality of Working Voices, but what's quite exciting is I'm hoping this can go on a a bit of an open road of my own version of Desert Island Discs because of the sort of storytelling archetypes along the way. So as you very kindly mentioned just now, there's something called the Clearing. So what I want to do first of all is just, um, well, just one step before the Clearing, When someone asks you the really clunky question, Dan, what do you do? We've all been there, dinner parties, networking events. What's your favourite way of answering without me trying to tell the world what you do?
1: Who are you, Dan, and what do you do? (laughs) Um, uh, Well, that's a very good question. Um, I have it written on a small piece of paper in my pocket for emergencies, Um, (laughs) (laughs) along with my name written on my label as well. So some habits die hard. (laughs) <laughs> uh, yeah, it's a good question. It's, um, it's evolved over many years. Uh, I, essentially, what I do is I tell stories. And, um, uh, and it's a bit of a shaky business to be in, uh, being in the media and telling stories, uh, starting as a journalist, working in television, working in film. Um, it's a bit precarious. You reinvent yourself from time and again. And so these days, my current iteration of, of myself is uh, the head of content at Working Voices, so I run the insights part of the website. I run the stories that we publish in, in association with what we do. Um, I, I run those uh, on that part of the site, and so that's um, articles and, um, and films and and essentially what it really boils down to. I love writing. I like telling stories, and I like writing. I love
0: that. And we, what we what we share in common, obviously, right across the board with Working Voices, in any case, is the love of storytelling. You know, in my own background. You talked about shaky ground. I think um, you know. You may find this is similar. I discovered quite early on that acting is a stupid way not to make a living unless you're incredibly flexible and good at the rest of your life, if you suppose, I suppose. So how we all evolve is what's fascinating. And I'm, I'm really intrigued to know about your, your journey to now. Um, so let's talk about that. What, what's brought you into the Working voices, Clearing? How did you get here specifically?
1: Uh, well, that's a good question. And, um, and the real answer to that, uh, there's two answers to that. And the real one will come out a bit later on in our conversation, I suspect. But um, the simplistic one on the surface is that um, I like um, uh, producing content and um, uh, I like the ethics and values that the company um, generally and um, Nick Smallman, CEO, specifically uh, stand by and I really wanted to be part of that. Um, it was the next stage in things for me I'd, uh, uh, in terms of writing, in terms of uh, filming, in terms of producing, um, this uh, as the head of content is an opportunity to pull these different strands together. And um, uh, so uh, that's the sort of uh, the, pe- well, the place where I am in my career right now. That, that's uh, what, so the,
0: what the sort of the
1: beacon of Nick Smallman and what he was representing that sort of drew you towards, I suppose, the lighthouse of working voices. Uh, the thing that Nick does specifically, and the company do generally, and they and they all do it um, in spades, including you, Chris, um, is that uh, it's a very unusual company in my mind. It took me ten years to find a company that ticked all these boxes. I'm, I would ten years. I'm, I'm quite. Uh, persistent, when i tenacious, when I find, when I know what it is I want, I will look for it forever and a day until I get it. And um, and it, uh, I was looking around for a company. As I say, it took me ten years, and I found uh, I found it in Working Voices, and then spent two years um, going back and forth. Uh, other jobs came up, and one thing another, but I really wanted to work for Working Voices. Because of the fact that they are very human and warm and authentic and those things really matter a lot to me and uh, being true to yourself and helping other people uh, find be true to themselves is something that means a lot to me.
0: And I'm assuming that there's a lovely parallel in your documentary experience you know the tenacity of needing to go deep into a topic you know, you've become really ingrained within trying to sort of you know go deep and then surface with the, the clarity and the stories that Working Voices are transmitting. Um, so do you want to talk about First of all, let's talk about what a clearing represents to you. So where do you go in the clutter and maelstrom of modern life? There's so much bombardment of our senses. But where do you go in order to get clear? So what's your clearing all about?
1: My clearing for me is half a clearing. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) semi uh, it's a semicircle, yeah. The clearing is in front of me and it's on the side of a hill and I'm looking at this big view that just stretches out as a semicircle uh, in front of me. The other h- half of the semicircle um, is uh, not a clearing at all. It's kind of hidden away. That's why it's on the side of a hill and not on top of a hill. Top of a hill is a very obvious place to be and it's, getting, it's when you're climbing up a hill, that's where you're guaranteed to meet people on the top of the hill. On the side of the hill, kind of hidden away a little bit, you got your own space, and you see the view anyway, and you can, and so that, I like that sort of uh, view and closeness. My wife will tell you I'm very black or white one side or the other, and, and, um, and so that side of the hill works for me.
0: I can relate to that. There's a, there's a hill that I like called Bray Hill in Cornwall, which overlooks Padstow Bay, if you like, and I too, it's quite a, 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 a big escarpment to, to go up. It's not that epic, but I too like to stop halfway and look back and beyond so I relate to that and there's almost a sort of there isn't well it's like a cave that you could go into there's a big divot where there was a I think a a slate mine in the side so there are definitely little nooks you can hide in where you can get your own space and contemplate. Perfect that's exactly the same yeah. Lovely so um, here we are in the clearing and we're going to shake your tree because there's a tree there, and we're gonna shake the tree to see which apples fall out. So I'm giving you the first storytelling archetype. Now, before we spoke, I sent you the instructions about an exercise that you've taken, it's called five, four, three, two, one. So Dan, I've invited you to take about five minutes, or as long as you needed, and thank you for doing that for me, to think about four things that have shaped you, three things that inspire you, two things that really grab your attention, And one quirky or unusual fact about you, Mr. Dan Parry, that we couldn't possibly know until you tell us. So in shaking your tree, you don't have to download or data dump the entire exercise there, but which element of that tree, you know, which apples, how would you like them apples, would you first like to talk about?
1: Uh, I think probably the first one is telling a story. That's uh, that's, that's one of my biggest apples, Chris, is uh, telling a story. And um, I think that shapes... Well, it is who I am, and it's consequently shaped what I do.
0: Okay. And what are your favourite types of story? And we can go way off the Working Voices domain. We'll find out. Because you you are a writer of a book, which was... uh, It's called Moonshot. I looked into that, and it it was about mankind's greatest adventure. Obviously, Neil Armstrong and the moon landing. So was was that your... Well, that's a book you've
1: written, so that must have been pretty important to you. Uh, Yeah, so... um... In terms of telling stories, uh, yeah, and writing, and that's where it culminated in. Um, I started out, um, after uni I did a a journalism course and I worked in local radio for three years and I worked in uh, BBC News and TV Centre for five years. So uh, eight years with the BBC and then I worked for an independent TV uh, company um, for about 10 years making films and then another five years at the BBC making films for them. And, um, uh, and then worked as a freelance for um, some pretty big uh, international directors and, uh, and, and that was all very good. So lots of different stories over time, worked on space stories, uh, space films for about seven years, uh, yep. back and forth to NASA in Houston, and um, a bit of time in NASA in uh, HQ in Washington. And um, obviously Neil Armstrong in, in person. Yeah, so, um, Uh, I started, uh, I was working on space films um, uh, around about 2000, uh, working towards 2009, which was the 50th anniversary of NASA. And um, uh, I was working on a a drama for ITV and some documentaries for other channels in the UK and in the US. And as part of that, I met probably 20 or 30 uh, astronauts. And um, some of them in short interviews, some of them I spent two or three days with. And um, uh, some of the modern uh, youngins working in uh, in the shuttle, uh, as it was, and um, and some of them are the old and bold. Uh, so there were 12 people that walked on the moon. Um, I met nine of them. Um, I'm the only person in the world who got an interview with Neil Armstrong in the last 20 years of his life, TV interview. And um, uh, and uh, and as as you say, uh, uh, the. I've written three books and, and the third one was uh, called Moonshots and uh, it's the inside story of of Apollo 11.
0: I love that expression old and bold you're talking about those that were you know as you say the, the few that have done the small step for man huge step for mankind and of course to meet the man himself must have been very thrilling. Um, I'm jumping about your career a bit and um, you've also interviewed George W. Bush, I, I don't know that story, but I'm assuming that wasn't just you taking a cheeky trip whilst you were working for NASA in Houston. So how many years, or, or what's the timeline of when you interviewed George W.? Uh,
1: actually, uh, well, uh, so the first thing, just, just to be clear, it's uh, George H.W., so that's uh, the 41st president, that's George W.'s dad. And, uh, Sorry. Uh, uh, and it was, uh, uh, it's funny you say that, actually it, it, it was a short hop, uh, cause being in Houston and interviewing astronauts and working at the, uh, what is now the Johnson space center. Um and, um, and, and Bush Bush's office was in downtown Houston, Houston's so up the road. So we went and interviewed him there, um, in connection with the film that we we're making about, uh, space shuttles and particularly challenger. Um, uh, the space shuttle challenger crashed, uh, in, uh, 2000 in 1986. And, um, uh, and George H.W. Bush was the vice president at the time and was responsible for setting and training um, investigations and, and mm-hmm. so forth. So we went along to his office and waited in his little uh, anteroom outside, uh, just me and the crew and, uh, and um, uh, uh, surrounded by... And his office is modeled on a White House. So there are secret service agents all over the place because once you're the president in America, that's it, you're the president for life. You always call yourself the president. You have secret service agents. Um, he had his uh, rack of uh, rifles on the wall, and he had uh, heads of deer hanging on the walls, and um, and then we he called us into a room, and we did the interview. And he was very easygoing and, and yeah. charming, and, and quite nice. And you, you know, he's sort of is um, probably has a shadowy side to his uh, CV, I'm sure, head of the CIA <laughs> at one point. <laughs> But, uh, but nevertheless, he was very entertaining and, um, and gave us a little present at the end of it. Um, some uh, coupling. with
0: that joke whenever you've got a big sort of steer with its rack
1: on the wall about how fast that must have been running to come through the wall. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. You were just tempted to go to the other side of the wall and see the rest of the deer sticking out the back of it. But yeah, <laughs> yeah we never, sadly never got that opportunity. Um, but, uh, yeah, I'm, hearing
0: so that, I'm hearing that you've spent a lot of time in, in the States weaving the story magic that you have. Uh, One of my other favourite documentary filmmakers is Louis Theroux, who you also said in passing when I spoke that you've also worked with a little bit as well.
1: Yes, uh, so yeah, back and forth to the States uh, for 15 years and uh, a few few funny moments there involved in that. And uh, when I was at the BBC, as I mentioned, um, in the last sort of five years doing stuff. uh, yes, uh, back and forth, a little bit with Louis through, really offering ideas more yeah. uh, and working on that production, on his productions. But uh, I, at that time I was um, uh, a producer in BBC history and, um, and he was in the documentaries department, which was just behind us. And so I would just give him ideas from time to time. yeah.
0: And uh, forgive me for sort of doing a bit of a sort of skim around. The other thing I was really excited to talk to you about was the fact you worked with Peter Kaminsky, who I think, assume was the director of Wolf Hall. It was just Wolf Hall that grabbed me because Mark Rylance is my all time favorite, favorite actor. Uh, Partly because of his use of silence, which is quite helpful when talking to people about how we experience gravitas and authority through the use of silence. So anything you'd like to tell me about, I mean, have you met Mark Rylance is my question.
1: (laughs) No. Um, (laughs) So uh, so, um, when you watch um, a factual drama, and um, so, uh, and there are plenty of examples that are around on TV and film uh, all the time. And, um, uh, and when you watch, uh, when you're watching a tr- the true story of someone, uh, um, a classic example might be um, the Salisbury poisonings—the the yeah. story of the Scrooples and the poison there in Salisbury. And there was a three-part series that went out on the BBC a couple of weeks back. And um, and that was just the sort of thing I would have worked on. In fact, I would have worked on that one um, uh, because I, the producers, I was working for the producers who made it. Um, when okay. I and uh, so my job was to go, someone would say, we're going to make a film about this story. And, um, and, and that's it. We're going to make a drama. So we've got a drama writer and a drama director and a drama producer, and we've got makeup and wardrobe. What we haven't got is the story. So we need someone to go out and find the actual story and then come and tell the writer and the director and then make sure the story is is true so that we don't get sued and that we are authentic and true to our roots being authentic and true to our roots as the thing i was saying before that's important to me and um uh so so my end would be quite quietly in the background um drilling into stories and finding people and persuading them to tell us their story sometimes for the first time ever so was
0: there any connection, have I made that up, the connection with Wolf Hall specifically? Was all you doing research to do with that program?
1: Uh, so uh, uh, so I, I worked for Peter Kosminski, who was the director of Wolf Hall, and, um, and, and he was uh, writing and directing a four-part series, drama series for uh, Channel 4, um, that was about the um, um, international war crimes, uh, uh, investigations of course, yes, yes. The former Yugoslavia. So I was chasing...
0: You know the quirks of Zoom, I've got a bin lorry that's arriving, can you hear it? I'll just no, go no I go. can't. No, if no. I leave the screen briefly, just, just bear with, bear with. Okay. That should hopefully... it was Seagulls <laughs> yesterday, I was on a call <laughs> with Charlie Schroeder and it was Seagulls. So right, right. <laughs> the quirks of modern Zoom. Yeah,
1: right. And what are you yeah. Were saying? Uh, yeah, so I was saying that's working on a, a four-part sh- series for Channel 4 with Peter Kozminsky about the um, international war crimes in the former Yugoslavia. And my job was to find, uh, there were 161 war criminals. And uh, we know how 159 of them were found and captured, mainly by the SAS and, and special forces. My job was to go and uh, uh, find members of special forces, the SAS and others, and, and, um, and spies, and find out who these people were, these people who were arrested and how they were arrested. And we did that for everybody with exception of two. And that yes. was Karadzic and Mladic. And, um, and that took me a year to find out how they were arrested and, um, and I'm, uh, I have a few secrets, uh, that I found because working at that level. And, um, uh, so I, 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 know how they were found and arrested and, um, but I'm not allowed to tell anybody what? and, um, uh, and, and, uh, and that was a little hairy, uh, working with those sorts of people. And, um, that's one of the reasons I wanted to uh, move on from, I've got young family and I wanted to move on from that kind wow. of world.
0: And by the way, was that the sort of remit in the brief of Dangerous Films? Was it this idea of you're going to go rogue and go a bit off piste, if you like, in order to really immerse yourself?
1: Uh, Yes. Uh, So at Dangerous Films, um, which is a small independent TV company operating in London, and I was the head of research there uh, for 10 years. And um, I wrote my three books uh, there in association with films that we were making. And... um, uh, a film might be, uh, might, the film would, most films we were making, they were 90 minute films. They were for four or five different channels around the world. They would have a budget of between four and six million pounds. Yeah. They would take two, uh, two years to make and they would involve, um, dozens and dozens of people. Dangerous films itself only had eight people or so. And, um, and we would just bring people in as and when we needed them. And my job was to spend that year or so going out and finding all the people involved in the story that we were making, whether it was about 9-11 or D-Day or the death of Diana to fi- or landing on the moon um, or about pirates and, and uh, Blackbeard to find the, uh, the absolute truth and, um, and then find a way of telling that story.
0: And, and mentioning pirates there, you don't mean Somali pirates, you mentioned Blackbeard. So we're talking about... The history of piracy is that
1: right or yes that's right so um the history of, of pirates and, and finding things so finding the truth finding things that pirates are not pirates are not um big big on um accountancy and spreadsheets and saving they don't bury their treasure <laughs> <Are> they <not>? <laughs> no <laughs> they so so they don't bury treasure they don't have treasure maps um they basically drank a lot and, and spent it the minute they got it. Pirate treasure is not gold coins and silver coins usually. Pirate treasure is food and bales of hay and clothes. It's a lot more simple. Did you
0: go on a sort of epic quest to
1: dob them into their accountants and, and bring them back to HMRC? Yeah, uh, every time they didn't fill out a spreadsheet or do their tax returns, I was right. <laughs> and, um... Uh, Pirates. What well, pirates are, uh, that we might forget, is they're expert sailors. They had to be better than everybody else because they're trying to capture everybody else. Uh, 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 and pirates uh, are the first example of, of uh, modern democracy in the Western world uh, because um, they had a, a, a big crew, maybe a merchant ship would have 10 people and pirate ship would have 100 people and they'd operate, operate as a democracy. And which, um, Dan, do
0: you happen to know, with all your research, why pirates are called pirates? Yes. Um, Cost uh, them, because what? Well, it's a joke. It might, yeah, I can't resist because they are.
1: Because they are. Yeah, very good. Yeah, yeah. We're going give an intelligent answer there, and I'm sorry to have trashed it. No, no, no. I'm enjoying that. Was it? Was it Robert Newton who was? Uh, so um, here's a couple of stories for you. There was. Uh, uh, is it Robert Newton? Is that his name? He was an actor from Bristol, and he he. He played the first representation of Blackbeard on screen, and because he came from Bristol, so he had a Bristolian accent and spoke like that. Well, Chris, you'll do a better version. You're from Bristol, but uh, he did a so he he spoke with a Bristol hour, and that's why all pirates these days are said to speak with oh, an hour. Oh
0: gosh, that's amazing! Because also in the in the history of uh, of lockdown, we've also had that very similar moment when uh, the statue of Edward Colston, you know, yes. history here was sort of in in classic promenade theatre, the statue was felled, you know, a bit like Saddam Hussein's back in the day, and yeah. it was rolled towards the harbour and then plopped in. And, yeah. you know, it, it's harbouring a well-known criminal. <laughs> there we go, I
1: think we did that. that the <laughs> <Yeah. one. laughs> it's the same story as the uh, uh, Neanderthals. We always, uh, my kids imagine uh, cavemen walk with a, uh, with a stoop and like, and, uh, and jog their knuckles, knuckles on the ground. That's because the very first skeleton that we found of a Neanderthal, um, had a back condition and was bent over. Okay. So there's always an explanation. Scoliosis,
0: or whatever it's called. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Uh,
1: by the way, your love of
0: storytelling and your love of history is, is so clear. I mean, honestly, we, we could talk for years and indeed <laughs> I hope that we sincerely do. Just tell me a bit about you being a London City guy, because I, I, I remember in, in one of the first times we met and we were going to you know, talk about doing a bit of a podcast uh, that you were thinking of doing, And you took me to a lovely pub. I had a lovely big glass of red wine that you bought, you lovely man. And we were sitting in an ancient uh, cockfighting pit in a pub. And we were just in a divot uh, as far as I knew. But then you told me the story.
1: Yeah. So um, I'm a qualified guide in the city of London and and also a guide in Westminster. Um, In Westminster, I do walks on uh, MI6 and MI5. And um, uh, and the real James Bonds and in the city uh, I do various walks through Great Fire of London, but but my real interest, my real passion is for historic pubs, and um, so uh, yeah, that was the um, uh, I think it was the, the, the Cock Tavern and um, in the, Clearly city in the title now I'm, I'm getting yeah, that. yeah 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 <laughs> the title yeah
0: exactly the story yeah. of the Cock Tavern. It's not just lo- a lot of people got a bit pissed. No one said look at those
1: yeah, anyway. Yeah so, yeah yeah and then. Um, but there's another one that we've got to go to next time. Oh, I know. I took you there actually, Chris. Yeah, another time uh, we went to and uh, another pub, um, ye old Wine Shades, that uh, is brilliant and um, has a secret tunnel. It survived the Great Fire of London, and it has a secret tunnel connecting down to the river where merchants would bring barrels of brandy up oh. into the pub to evade taxes. And that tunnel, you can see it down in the in the cellars of the pub. Um, it was all bricked in now, but you can see where it was. I love the fact, again,
0: there's a recurring theme there, of you just gagging to dob people into the tax man for not
1: being <laughs> the another-
0: right
1: <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I'd be rumbled, sorry.
0: No, beautiful. So thank you so much for, for, if you've just tuned in, you're watching what you need as a damn good listening to with me, Chris Grimes, and this is the lovely Dan Parry, who's head of content at Working Voices. Um, so yeah, let's talk about, um, in a nutshell then, here we are in the clearing. Is there anything else you'd like to tell us in the apples that we're shaking about here?
1: uh the, my my four things were uh so i liked um yeah, telling a story uh, the, the things that shaped me uh telling a story we talked about people i love understanding people yeah and um uh and uh, i love being outside and that's a big important thing to me and then um and then another thing was just in my life when i was at uni i, I stopped talking for well I couldn't talk very well for about two or three years and, um, and then I spent a few years unpicking that and finding out why, and, um, and that was just childhood stuff. And, and, uh, but that has shaped me uh, for, wow. uh, for really my adult life. So those are the things that have shaped me.
0: And, and by the way, that's going back a good
1: few minutes
0: now, but why I love uh, Mark Rylance so well, I don't know if you ever listened to his uh, Desert Island Discs, but um, he was uh, apparently mute. For most of his early life until he was about four years old, which interestingly now has made him an acutely good actor because of his profound ability to just listen and so there's something really profound about the use of silence and the use of quiet uh, and so I'm just interested in that sort of connection in, in how how you've journeyed towards the stories that you tell and you know the journey you've been to sort of unpick why certain things have come about
1: yeah that's right yeah and, and- Silence is, uh, is a tricky thing. Uh, uh, Mark Rylance uses it uh, with, with a great uh, source of power, and um, it's, it's the root and the power of his acting, his performance, I think. Um, mm. Many of the people that I've spoken to, are usually uh, older men, for example, so um, soldiers or astronauts, and uh, silence for them um, has been uh, oh, a persistent course of trouble because. Um, they come from a generation where they don't tell their story to themselves or to other people. So sometimes it might, you're asking somebody about their space, like when they nearly died on a, uh, in Normandy in D-Day or when they died on a space mission or they were lined up against a wall and about to be shot. And, um, uh, and they've never told these stories to anybody. And um, or the body, I, was, I got the first interviews with uh, some of the, with the bodyguards who were with Diana in the tunnel on the night she died. And, and, they, and sometimes they never, they've never spoken of these things to themselves or to their family, never mind on camera. Mm-hmm. And so silence for some of these people is uh, a thing for for them to overcome. And I relate to that uh, silence. For me, was less a thing about power; it was an immense source of frustration. And and um, I, uh, and I wanted to overcome it. And and uh, yeah.
0: And of course, there's the, the the sort of utter vacuum silence of space, which I suppose is also in the mix there. If you're an astronaut, so incredibly. Yeah, that's
1: true. That, yeah, 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 I hadn't thought of that. Yes,
0: that's right. Yeah, but vacuum of yeah, there's no sound in space. Yeah. So in terms of still waters Run Deep, this is a bit like exploring Loch Ness in a way because we just don't, this is brilliantly deep in what you're describing. The stories that you've, you've picked up on over time are, are, are really profound. Um, so what's, what's next for you? You're in the Working Voices domain currently, you know, what are you most excited on that you're working on? What are you most excited about that you're working on at the moment?
1: well and this is one of the things that i think that nick and and you and and the company do so well is that everything is rooted in a very human and warm way of things that's telling stories and writing for business and these sorts of skills that we understand they're not just remote skills that you know you know i got to learn and it's quite useful maybe this is the fundamental source of communication it's how we take what's in locked in our head and give it to someone else and listen to them when they're doing the same and um uh, and Nick's uh, big interest is in showing how these skills work in the real world. For us, the biggest example of communication in the real world at the moment is the US election. Yes. And so uh, I am looking at uh, ways that communication, um, speaking and listening uh, are corrupted, um, and, and how, this can, how this corruption takes place, and what impact it has on people. Uh, Donald Trump might, for example, um, be less than honest sometimes and have an interest in fake news and what damage or impact does that have on voters? Yes. These things we can see um, um, in ha- happening in front of us and by explaining them we get to explain some of the skills that we train people in. For example, in um, understanding uh, critical thinking, understanding how yeah. to speak clearly. Uh, I mean, he's part really of the, the sort of zeitgeist at the moment about how the
0: world has become very, you know, binary almost. And of course, communication is much more sophisticated than that. But there's sort of Trump schmump in the UK who had Brexit schmexit. Now, there's this incredibly binary nature. And of course, what we spend a lot of time doing is exploring the emotional intelligence of
1: actually, it's not just polarisation. There's something far richer in the middle. Oh, indeed. I mean, look, uh, it is binary and because there's lots of tribal politics at the moment. But look at what you're doing, Chris. You were just speaking. When you were just speaking, you're speaking in four ways. And I'm and I'm looking at all those four ways and seeing what you're really saying. Uh, so one way is that you're speaking out loud. Those are the words. If you wrote those down as a script, would somebody else say it in exactly the same way? Probably not. Yeah. Uh, because of the second way that's going on, which is, how are you saying them? What's the mood and the intonation and the rest of it that influences and shapes those words? And, um, and that's not written in the script. That's why actors have the ability to create a performance of words. And thirdly, what uh, wh- what do your words and your intonation and moods betray about what's really going on in your head? And um, you might be saying words and saying things, but actually what's really going on in your head is a bit of frustration because there's a dump truck outside the window. And um, And the fourth... <laughs> And the fourth thing that you're, I'm, I'm watching and listening to is your body language, your hands. And when you're expansive, you, you're clearly interested in what you're doing and what you're saying. So language and communication is not binary, as you say. There's lots going on. And it's, uh, and it's important to read it all and understand the nuances if we want to understand each other. In fact, one of my favourite
0: quotes, which we'll be familiar to you, is a Ralph Waldo Emerson quote, which is, your actions are speaking so loudly, I can't hear what you're saying.
1: <laughs> which
0: yeah. the Maya Angelou quote which is people never remember what you say but they'll always remember
1: how you make them feel and yeah you think of a, you think of an interview there's a, there's a famous Damon Alburn, Damon the lead singer of Blur interview that he gave to Jonathan Ross where he, you know you read the words on paper it looks like an interview that he gave to Jonathan Ross but if you see it you know it was radically different from all the other interviews because the interview starts with him like this and like, already you know this is somebody who doesn't want to be interviewed and um, so yes uh, actions speak louder than words sometimes.
0: I, I gather, well, so Michael Parkinson had some um, famously very, very tough interviews as well, didn't he? Uh, I think Meg Ryan was a sort of famous example of that. I think that was yeah. the interviewer.
1: Yeah, so I, I, I enjoy understanding people and reading who they are and what they're saying uh, in order to put them at their ease and get from them the story that uh, I'm interested in and I want to tell other people.
0: Now bringing you back to the clearing and this has been such an interesting conversation. um, I'd like to now award you with a metaphorical cake, Dan Parry, and I'm going to invite you to put a cherry on the cake. Uh, When you're really in your sweet spot of being a storyteller, whether that's journalistically as a documentary filmmaker or working for Working Voices, what is it you most like to help people with? What's the cherry on the cake that you'd like to
1: impart? Um, I think, that uh, I, I want to be able to help people with, is to say that when you are telling a story, whether you're writing something or trying to have a difficult conversation with someone, there's a lot of thoughts and a lot of things that, that you're trying to coalesce and trying to bring together. And, and you can see it in, in uh, writing, especially. And, um, and sometimes the hardest thing about all of that is where to start uh, so that you, Put yourself on the right footing so you go in the right direction so that you make sure the person understands what it is you're saying but doesn't get upset or you don't get upset in the process sometimes. And um, if, if it's a difficult conversation or if you're not saying everything you want to be saying, or, or ultimately you want to make sure they understand you. And, um, and the best way uh, really is to, when you finish writing something, just take a look at the last line and stick that at the top. And, um, uh, or if you're short of time and you're reading an article, just jump to the last line. Because by the time you've written something or said something or worked it out, uh, it's all coalesced together and you run out of time and space. And so everything coalesces together beautifully and crystallized in that last line and last thought. If you can start there, that's the best place, best way to begin a story. And one of our esteemed colleagues,
0: Charlie Schroeder, by the way, has just done a film on YouTube, which is exactly about that bottom line on top, which is a top tip we like to expound upon. So in summary, it's bottom line on top. And what I've really read between the lines, what you're all about is it's all about the relationship stupid, which is one of my favourite quotes. Dan Parry, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you on what you need is a damn good listening to. Anything else you'd like to say as a final
1: statement, Mr. Dan? Here's your bottom line on top. My bottom line on top. Um, yeah, no, that's. Uh, uh, I've, uh, I've run out of things, but you'll be delighted to hear. But no, Chris, uh, I've very much enjoyed talking to you. And, um, and as I say, uh, thank you very much for uh, uh, having me in your clearing. You're very welcome. It's been a joy having you here.
0: And I'm going to find the button now, which I can't seem to find. This is good, is it? Oh, here we go. And we're about to stop. Good night. You've been listening to the Good Listening To podcast with me, Chris Grimes. If you've enjoyed listening and you'd like to hear more, then please do subscribe on all the usual channels. Plus, I'm hosted on Buzzsprout. And you can connect with me, Chris Grimes, on LinkedIn, on Twitter, at ThatChrisGrimes. Plus, you can also visit my two websites, secondcurve.uk and instantwit.co.uk. So thanks for listening to a GLT with me, CG. Until next time, OWTD, on with the day, and goodbye.